0: I do encourage you to um, clap for Charlie. uh, His devotion to uh, crop has been great for them. I know they appreciate it. And this is a nice way that we as uh, congregations at New Life and Sherland can partner together because Sherland is also partnering uh, with the Crop Walk. So uh, please consider uh, getting on board of that. Talk to Charlie if you have more questions. Uh, You can talk to me if you have more questions. Uh, And Let's uh, make a good showing for that and also um, talk to those people in in our lives that uh, may want to support this cause. As we transition now from time of fellowship to a time of word and a time of uh, forming, let us uh, join together in a time of prayer, centering ourselves for what we uh, are about to do. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you send your Spirit upon us now that you allow us to hear what you have to say to us that you allow us to dig into some tough stories to uh, dig into some tough uh, words that you've uh, left for us that you speak to us that we may truly hear your calling that we may truly understand how to truly follow you to truly go all in we pray this in your holy name amen well welcome once again to new life i'm mark myers and uh, i want to welcome all those joining us online or through our podcast, you can catch up on any of uh, this series or any of our series at uh, wwwfindnewlifeumc.org, uh, or on our podcast on iTunes' New Life UMC. Now last week we introduced you to the idea of consecrating yourself to God, going all in and all out for the all in all, as Pastor Mark Batterson, the author of the book "All In," says. Now, I invited you to start following Jesus, not inviting Jesus to follow you. That's what we call the inverted gospel. I also talked about committing yourself to consecration by radical devotion to praying, being present, giving, serving, and witnessing five areas of stewardship. So what's it look like to go all in? Well, let's look at a baffling story from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 Just the first two verses. Hear these words. After these events, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. Abraham answered, I'm here. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up as an entirely burnt offering there on one of the mountains that I will show you. It's one of those passages in Scripture that we wish wasn't there. It's a baffling and confusing testament. Why would God who is love, God who is merciful, God who is just, ask Abraham to murder His own son? Remember Abraham and Sarah, the story thus far in the book of Genesis, they left their home, their comfort, everything they had to follow, God. They were in their 80s when they went on this all-in expedition. They, they thought they were completely following God's will. They left their home in Ur and went to a land that God promised God would show them, and God made them promises. God promised Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the sands, even though at 80 years old he had no children. God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would live in a land that was promised to them even though they knew not where that land was. Now God did provide them with a son, Isaac, even in their old age. And Isaac was a wonderful gift. But now God was asking for it all back. How could that be? Well, this was a test. The Scripture says it plainly. God tested Abraham. I believe God does, in fact, test us. And here we see one of the greatest tests in Scripture. Now, Jewish tradition holds that God tested Abraham ten times, and this was definitely the final exam. This was a test designed to see if Abraham was truly all in. Now, there are two reasons I can see for God to test us. First, a test is an opportunity for God to prove himself to us. Second, a test is an opportunity for us to prove ourselves to God. Therefore, trials and tests should be looked on with a certain amount of joy as there are chance to witness and to testify to God. There's no testimony without tests. Safe Christianity shies away from testing. But we cannot grow without tests. We cannot overcome and prove that we've gone all in unless we have the opportunity to run far, far away. The story goes that Abraham did as he was asked. He marched his son to that mountain. He laid him on that altar and he raised his knife. A horrible moment. But an all-in moment. Now God did not want Isaac to die. I think that's important. God did not want Abraham to kill Isaac. Tradition actually holds that on the sixth day of creation, God created a ram. That ram in this story. And put that ram under the tree of life. And that ram sat there that entire time eating of that fruit until this day, the ordained day, when God would use that ram in place of Isaac. That may or may not be true, but I think there's truth in it. God uses our proving grounds to be providing grounds. God provides us with everything we need when we are ready to go all in. God provided Abraham and Sarah with a son and provided a ram so that son could live. Now, I do not believe that God tempts us. God allows us escape from all temptation. The Bible says that. But God does test us. The closer we are to God, the closer we are to following Christ, the harder the tests become. Think about it like this. Tests in first grade were a lot easier than tests in graduate school closer we get to Christ, the harder and harder the tests may become. So it's a good thing to imagine that your hardest tests are not behind you. Now Isaac was everything to Abraham and Sarah. He was the center of their universe. He was their life, their future, their legacy. But Abraham had to be willing to show God that God was still more important than the gift Which was Isaac. Now, Isaac could have become all encompassing everything, their entire focus, but God needed to remain in the center. So we have to ask ourselves what is our Isaac? What do you find your identity in? What do you find your security in? Look at your calendar, look at your checkbook. Where are your priorities? If your identity and security are not found in the cross of Jesus Christ, you may not be following Jesus Christ. Your trust should be fully in God and anything that conflicts with those two truths may be up for gabs when it comes to tests from God. Now I'm not saying that God's going to take away your Isaac. God didn't take away Isaac. God gave Abraham and Sarah Isaac and God did not take him away. But God wanted to make sure that Abraham and Sarah had God at the center. Because he was going to be a father of a great nation. A nation that needed to follow God. And if Abraham and Sarah didn't have God at their center, Isaac wouldn't have had God in his center. And Jacob wouldn't have had God in his center. And Joseph, and so on. Now, Jennifer and I became foster parents because we felt called by God. We felt that we were doing that because of that call and we knew that it was something important to do because of who we were as followers of Jesus Christ. But sometimes, other things can become the center, not that assurance of why we went into it and who we were going into it for. Sometimes people come up to us and they say things like this, even after a short conversation, and it's no secret that I am willing to talk about my children, willing to celebrate my children, even with strangers. And so after a short interchange with a stranger, or even an acquaintance, catching up with someone who maybe hasn't seen us for a while, I often get comments like this, that, wow, you and Jennifer are doing doing something that's so great, or I don't think I could do something like that, or what a blessing you are to those children. And as much as I Enjoy hearing how great I am. (laughs) There's a certain type of pride that could refute or get in the way of why we're doing this. We are not doing this to feel good about ourselves. We're not doing this to be praised. There are a lot better things you can do to be praised, right? So that's one type of Isaac where the gift becomes the center. But I've realized recently that there is a more insidious Isaac for our situation, for our story, not just the praise. And I realize that those statements of praise by acquaintances, I'm not talking about um, anyone here or anything like that. I'm talking about strangers, acquaintances. Those statements of praise are actually awkward statements. Have you ever been to a uh, funeral of a loved one or had someone die or, or knew someone who had someone else die and you went and you, you tried to say something comforting and it just came out awful. Or you just didn't know what the words you know and, and God bless them, they probably knew what you were trying to get across, but you know, you just couldn't put words to it. And what I've realized is the majority of people that come and say things like that who are are not close to us, what they're really saying, and this leads to a much greater danger in our lives is I don't know how you can take care of someone, a little girl, who is so damaged. It's a hard thing to do for a lot of people, and I understand that. And that leads to a very different kind of making Isaac the center of the universe. I don't know about all of you, but I know many of you are parents. And I don't know how it was for you in your your parenthood, because I don't have um, birth children. I, I wasn't there at the birth of these children. Uh, but I've heard and I imagine that there's a moment early on, even maybe before they're born, that, that you, you love them, that you just know. It's different for foster children. It's just a reality. I wasn't there when they were born. I, I didn't know them when they were real little. And so you have to fall in love with your foster children. And I remember the day, the moment, when I fell in love with Selena. She had just come back into Rockford from uh, being in RIC in Chicago. And, and she, wa- she was at the nursing home, and we were allowed to. We had been visiting her every day, and, and we were allowed to then take her out and spend some time with her. And so we took her to uh, a concert at an old... Lutheran Church and we saw the Alleluia Quartet. Brother Todd is part of that. And believe me, the, the young people at the, that Lutheran Church were real excited about having a little baby right there in the front row. But it was fine. And it was a wonderful concert as the Alleluia Quartet does. And, and during that concert, I won't say it was anything from the music, so I don't get a big head there. Mr. Todd. <laughs> but during that concert, as wonderful as it was, my little girl was sitting there in her car carrier and she was asleep and she opened her eyes and she looked at me and smiled and it was that moment that I fell in love with her. It was that moment that I went all in in our relationship. I would storm the gates of hell for that little girl. I fought for her. I continue to fight for her. But I am not her savior. I grew up with movies and video games and, and comic books and stories that taught me as, as, a, as a boy, as a young man, that there were princesses out there that needed to be saved. And that's a terrible image of women. That's a terrible image that young men and young women are bombarded with. Even to this day, it's still, still pervasive in our society. Thankfully, I, I married a strong woman who did not need saving. But I have a little girl that could have in my mind. And when she, or or when I think that I am doing the saving, I am not me, I am Jesus. And I have a reality check for myself and for most of you, I am not Jesus. I am not her Savior. I can fight for her, I can love her, I can protect her. I can seek justice in her life, but I cannot save her. Only the blood of Christ can do that. So when we make something our Isaac, and when we make our children or our spouse or anyone in our life an Isaac, we are denying them of the saving power of Jesus Christ. By going all in in our minds, we're denying someone else of an all-in experience. And we are putting ourselves in front of and Jesus in the back. We've inverted the Gospel in that story. Now I want to take this another direction, and I want to jo- jump to uh, Luke chapter 7. It's a wonderful story. This is a great story. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. And after he entered the Pharisees' home, he took his place at the table. Meanwhile, a woman from the city, a sinner. Well, that must be an awful thing to be, a, just a sinner in your city. Don't even have a name. She discovered that Jesus was dining in the Pharisee's house. She brought perfumed oil in a vase made of alabaster. Standing behind him at his feet and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair kissed them and poured the oil out over them. Now this perfume in the story was pure nard. It's a perennial herb that's uh, harvested in the Himalayan mountains. The jar itself was made of semi-transparent gemstones. It's a beautiful beautiful antique beautiful, uh, beautiful container. It was most likely a family heirloom. It may have even been her dowry. Either way, it represented who she was and what she had. It was her past guilt. It was her future hope. It was her everything. It was her Isaac. And now in one of the most beautiful acts of worship recorded in Scripture, this woman goes all in and sacrifices who she is and what she has literally at the feet of Jesus. Now if we're ready to go all in, we need to be able to do the same. This brings me to a topic of stewardship. Last week we talked about prayer. This week we're going to talk about money. I don't know if it's our culture or the world in general, if this is a timeless problem or a current problem, but for many people, money defines who they are and what they are worth. Literally, money defines what we have and it defines our wealth. Jesus says we cannot serve two masters, God and money. We need to learn how to break our jars. We need to learn to separate who we are and what we have from our money, our possessions, and our wealth. That's why I believe the going all-in act of giving is so spiritually transformative. Now, I've preached on the, the uh, scriptural impetus behind giving many times. If you want to look back, you can look back to a uh, November 16th online 2013 to a series or a sermon titled pennies in the fountain that gives you all of the uh, scripture tied to tithing and giving and everything else but this series i'm talking about radical stewardship i'm not talking about things you can do first steps you can take but i'm talking about what it would look like to pray radically to go all in in our giving to go all in in service and we'll talk about those things later but tonight i want to focus on giving now, the Hebrew Scripture teaches us to tithe, to give 10% back to God. Giving a tithe is a great thing to your local church. It helps the church do ministry, which unfortunately costs money. It honors God. It can transform your life, and it can transform the, other's lives, or the lives of others. But it is not radical. And that's unfortunately where we've come in our society. In the Jewish culture, the tithe was the norm. It was expected. It was not radical. It was the bare minimum. Jesus challenged us to go all in. What would that look like? Now, I was taught to tithe. When I was growing up, if I got $10 in allowance, I would give $1 to the church. When I started working for myself, or started working out out in the world, I figured out what 10% of my paycheck would be. And I gave that to the church. I thought I was doing pretty good, and I've always been pretty good when it comes to tithing. And so when I came to uh, my wife's home church and when I met her, I taught her about tithing. And she taught me that that wasn't good enough. Jennifer and I have tithed every year that we've been together. But we decided at some point we need to go all in. At least we need to start the process of going all in. This year we will tithe. We're tithing to New Life, and uh, our tithe is, is over $9,000 to this congregation. But a couple years ago we decided to do something else beyond the tithe, an offering. And we started with 1%, and uh, this year it, it's around $3,700 that we'll give to charity in general outside of New Life, although much of that money has also gone to New Life. We have increased that offering 1% every year, and and next year that uh, will be 5%. So we're at 15% of our income going to God, going to ministry, going to charity, and that's still less than I pay for taxes. It's not radical. There was a point in my life that I thought that was all in. That 10% or 15% that that was that was being fully devoted to God. Now we haven't figured out our, our, our giving next year because of the relationship with Sherlin. We want to be uh, fair and equal in our tithing uh, between the two congregations. But that's not the end. The 15% is just a beginning. What I want to think about is what radical giving looks like. I don't think it's 15%. I think it's more like 90%. I think maybe it's even 100%. That's the goal of our family, to give more and more and live on less and less. John Wesley, the founder of our movement, said, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And when we hear that, as modern Americans, we say, well, you know, put it in the bank and everything else. That's not what he meant. He meant earn everything you can, don't spend very much, and then give everything you can away. On his meager salary, it's said that he... Gave away millions of dollars to charity and he died literally with pennies in his pocket and pennies to his name. Now, I have a lot of nice things. I have things I don't need. But here's the funny thing. The more we give away as a family, the better life becomes. The more we feel that we have. The more we know we have. And I look forward to paying off loans and debt so that we can give more away. Because it is one of the most transforming and spiritually renewing things we do in our life. And I think it's one of the most powerful loving actions that we can take because it flies in the face of everything our world says. Our world says earn and keep and spend. And Jesus said, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. The woman with the alabaster jar was not on the guest list of that party. She crashed the party and Jesus honored her. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time with good religious folk. He spent time with people who were desperate for God. He made time for a tax collector who climbed up a sycamore tree just to get a peek at him. He made time for four friends who cut a hole in someone else's house to lower their friend who was paralyzed down to see Jesus. Jesus honored a woman who fought through a crowd just to touch his robe. Jesus praised this party crasher. Now nothing has changed since Jesus was on earth. God still honors desperados. The question is, how desperate are you? Desperate enough to put your Isaac on the altar? Desperate enough to break your alabaster jar? I believe true spirituality is at the place where desperation meets Jesus. It's time to go all in. Amen. Let's transition now to our forwarding time. Give me something to drink here. As we do, let us pray. Remembering those who can't be here, remembering our family and friends who are struggling, remembering our world, which is certainly in need of a Savior. Let us pray. Lord of life, help us hear your call to follow us. Help us answer that call and follow you, not lead. Lord, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to guide us in all things. Allow us to go all in and all out as disciples. Unite our hearts and make us one in all we do. Truly set us apart. We consecrate ourselves for your work, that we may be sons and daughters of your kingdom, that we may be people of new life today and all days. We pray to be dangerous in discipleship, to be radical in love, to be transforming in service, to be one in your presence, to be connected in prayer, to be humble in giving and to be bold in our witness. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son who came and did save us all. Amen.